Welcome to the PRBI Insider presented by PR Boutiques International. The very best PR results required tailored strategies and individual attention. Effective techniques vary considerably from market to market and culture to culture. So when we create a program, rather than laying out prescribed solutions lacking in freshness and vitality, we start with careful consideration of our clients' objectives and plan a creative roadmap. PRBI, a constellation of boutique agencies connecting cultures and sectors. Hello, everyone, and I'd like to welcome you to another session on the PRBI Insider podcast series, Influencing Stakeholders and Building Consensus. Today, we're going to talk about taking the middle road to achieve unity and win support. And our guest is Paul Fariga, whom I'm very happy to introduce. He is the CEO and Chief Storyteller of WordWrite, an agency based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's had two decades in journalism, shaping his storytelling skills, and his curiosity about the why behind every organization's story led him to found WordWrite and write the book, Finding Your Capital S Story, Why Your Story Drives Your Brand. And we're going to talk about some of the fantastic information that's available in his book. Paul has been working around crises and uh, practicing the art of influencing opinion for his entire career. He was a vice president at Ketchum, working on global crises, including the Firestone Ford crisis. WordWrite's crisis practice is a go-to counselor for organizations seeking to mitigate and prevent reputational damage and handles 12 or more crises a year. Ten you probably never heard about, and maybe two that were all over the news. Paul's emphasis is on the importance of sharing your capital S story in a crisis, and he speaks frequently on this topic. And over the years, crisis clients have included chemical companies, manufacturers, utilities, universities, pharmaceutical companies, a very broad range of companies and organizations, and a very broad variety of potential and real crises. So first, welcome, Paul. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on this series. Honored to be here. And I should say also, Paul is a past president of PRBI and has shared his wisdom and leadership uh, with our group for for many years, and we're very appreciative of that. Oh, thank you, Joy. We're members of the same club. You're also a past president. That's true. We're in the past president's club. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations on your book, which I've read and heartily endorse. Thank you. It's really chock full of information about new ways to think about communicating. And first of all, tell us about the idea of the capital S story and why it's so important. Well, obviously, PRBI stands for Public Relations Boutiques International. And in PR, there are stories and there are stories. So in the old days, today's story would be tomorrow's birdcage liner. Today, a story, you swipe left or swipe right, and it's gone. So those kinds of stories are small stories. The capitalist story is the story above all others, and it answers critical questions about your organization, why somebody would buy from you, work for you, invest in you, partner with you. If you're a nonprofit, why somebody might donate to you or volunteer for you. So it's the story above all other stories that describes the true character and nature of the organization itself. So sounds like 
very important and a tall order for a lot of a lot of companies and a deep dive required to figure this out. Yes. How do you go about helping companies develop their or identify what their capital S story is? And also getting consensus on that because uh, we'll find within any organization there are a variety of different opinions. One of the most difficult issues is what you just said. And one of the reasons why we developed our own trademark process called story crafting which has evolved over the last dozen years or so. It's a process that takes, in its first phase, 30 to 45 days to uncover the archetypal story that describes the organization. In the 21st century, we live in in an age of digital clutter, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in terms of the whole crisis aspect. But there's too much information. How are we going to make sense of it? Our brains were not designed in the 21st century. They've been around a long, long time. And to make sense of the world, our brains use a storytelling paradigm. What some researchers call the old brain, the brain that controls things such as fight or flight or breathing, that we share with many mammals, this is why researchers call it the old brain, responds to six stimuli, basically. It looks for contrast, looks for visual inputs, it looks for things that are memorable. It looks for things that are personal, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what stories are, all of those things. And if you take the concept of the capital S story, the most important story of your organization, and align that with how people take in information, you begin to understand the importance of knowing what your story is, your capital S story, and making sure that it's infused in all of your communications and in all of your marketing. Another thing that we've learned and is part of our process comes not from marketing, not from PR, but from science. People like Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst. What those two gentlemen learned from their different professions over the years is that regardless of time, culture, economic attainment around the world, societies over and over again have told the same stories. Example, David and Goliath. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that David and Goliath's story is the underdog against the big guy story. And so what we do in our work is help companies identify the archetypal essence of their capital S story. And then we help them present that story in a way that's relevant in the 21st century. So we're not going to work with somebody, generally speaking, who might be an underdog and say, hi, I'm David, I'm going up against Goliath. But that sensibility will be communicated and the work that we do together so that audiences clearly and quickly can understand, even if these words aren't used, I get it. This is an underdog story. That's fascinating, all the the research behind how we respond to storytelling. Yes. Um, And I think it's even more important today when our attention spans have become very limited because of of all the information that we we have to process. So using that story and grabbing people's attention with it quickly, it's so important to be memorable and to be noticed. It's critical. And we're going to talk about this too. It's even more critical in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's go there and talk about why the capital S story is so important in a crisis situation. And uh, in those kinds of situations, of course, it's very important to be influencing uh, public opinion. So what's the role of the capital S story? 
Many years ago, there was a popular book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. We can say in the 21st century, bad things happen to good organizations as well. And the problem is, in a social media age, as Winston Churchill supposedly once said, a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth has its pants on. So social media and its prevalence and its speed make it almost impossible to take your time and think through a lengthy response. What people who are in in your stakeholder audiences, whether it's investors or employees or customers or vendors or suppliers or regulatory agencies are going to do when bad news happens with your organization, they're going to ask themselves this question. What is the character and the nature of this organization? What did I know about it before this crisis happened? And if you haven't done a good job of sharing your capital S story, enjoy. This has happened with some of the organizations we've worked with. All they're going to see is what is in the Google results after the crisis, the first 10 on the first page. And if you haven't shared your capital S story, those are going to be bad, bad, and worse. So it really also has to do with building equity in terms of getting a share of mind that's positive, you know, building relationships, building the trust, building the awareness, creating stakeholders, people who care about you before the crisis happens. Yes. So there's there's three aspects to this. Number one, what you just said is what we call putting deposits in the bank of goodwill. So you want to be sharing your story before a crisis happens so that you can build the kind of relationships you're describing. When a crisis occurs, you want to be pointing people back to your capital S story. Hey folks, we're going through a bad time right now, but remember, you know, if we're a bank, we're the first bank in this community who was making these kinds of affordable housing loans. And that's who we really are. And then, of course, when a crisis is over, the third part of it is you want to be pointing people back to your capital S story so they remember the true character and nature of the organization, despite whatever bad thing has happened to the good organization. You know, it boils down also to to having trust, to having built trust over the years. And your book talks about that, too. And uh, you, you refer to it as the language of trust. There's another book by that name, which is the basic, the framework for approaching communication for you. Could you talk about that? And what is the language of trust? And why is it so important in communication today? Absolutely. So the book, The Language of Trust, was written by a gentleman named Michael Meslansky. He was a partner in the firm that did a lot of the polling for, I'll call them, given today's environment, more moderate Republicans around the time of George W. Bush's presidency. And his conclusion in the book was that there, as things become fractured in discussions, and this can happen in politics or it can happen on any issue, There's 20% of the people who are always going to agree with you, 20% of the people who will never agree with you, and it's the people in the middle that make a difference. And the way you're going to engage those folks and draw them to your way of thinking is by using what he called the language of trust. So instead of pointing fingers at people and using negative words and phrases and images and concepts, you want to identify concepts that everybody can agree on and draw people to the middle 
rather than push them to the extremes. That's the language of trust. So how does this work? Like, could you give us some examples maybe of um, how companies might have used this premise in, say, a crisis situation or to prevent one? Sure. So the, the first thing is by identifying the things that people agree on. So let's start in a broader sense, and then I'll give you some examples. From a very broad sense, what you're looking to do is use words and phrases and concepts that everybody can agree on. So an example would be family. It's as American as apple pie. Now, different people may define family differently, but the concept of family is well known and well understood. One of the examples that I frequently use uh, in terms of companies is what Domino's Pizza has done to identify and develop the language of trust. And in recent years, we've even seen this in in their advertising. They really took to heart the experience that customers often took to complaining about on social media to the extent that they were doing an advertising campaign where they were showing up on people's front doorsteps with, let's call them, make good orders and with commentary from direct from the CEO of the company saying that they were going to do a better job. They owned up to some of the issues that customers said they were experiencing, and they focused on what it is that the customers really wanted and what they really wanted to. The company was going to succeed by selling lots of great pizza that was properly prepared and delivered on time. And by golly, that's what the customers wanted as well. Very interesting. So they they kind of took their mistakes in a way And by making good on them, doing the right thing, they reinforced and communicated that this was a company that could be trusted to do the right thing as well as make a good pizza. Yes, yes. And and I'll give you a little bit of phraseology that helps in terms of developing the language of trust and, and getting people on the same page. When an opinion is shared about something, you acknowledge, right, and say yes, and what I like about your idea is, or what I see in your idea is, and then you can pivot to talk about your own idea. What you're doing is you're building a bridge. Help people understand that you both care about the same thing and that where they sit or where they stand and where you sit or stand can be joined together by an overarching concept. You know, it seems if we could all learn this language, uh, we would be so much better off. You know, I think about teaching it in in media training and how to deal with opinions that may be different, but bringing them together, as you said earlier, in the common values. Uh, It's all too easy to respond negatively if you disagree with someone. I wanted to ask, too, about the... um, The situation that is uh, frequently found in politics these days where people just basically aren't listening. How are they aren't listening to each other? You know, people have made up their opinion. That's that. You know, they they don't really hear anything outside of their own sphere. Um, And you did cite the uh, the author of the previous book, too, being uh, involved in political polling. So how can you apply this concept when you have maybe two audiences that aren't even communicating, they are so far apart that they aren't even talking to help build trust. Well, that's a really good question. Some background first. 
number one, as an example, post Donald Trump's presidency, you'll see over and over again that 70% of Republicans feel this way or 80% of Republicans feel this way. That may well be true, but Republicans are not 50% of the population, nor are Democrats. When Maslansky wrote his book, he had 20 and 20 in terms of percentages on the far ends. On issues today, it might be 40 and 40 with only 20 in the middle, or it might be 30 and 30. It doesn't matter. What matters is the middle. The middle is where the action happens, and everything we're talking about today applies first and foremost to those folks in the middle. Now, it may be a thin sort of minority that we're talking about if the issue is particularly contentious, but I've closely observed what's going on with politics and public discourse on issues like social justice, and I really don't believe that's the case. I just don't. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick example, uh, anecdotal. I, I know uh, an individual who uh, refused to get vaccinated for the coronavirus. This person was repeating a lot of the things that had been said by the anti-vaxxer movement about it. This is a feeling that was shared by the person's entire family. Sadly, this person contracted the coronavirus Within 48 hours, most of the people in the family had gotten vaccinated. Now, what what happened there? Um, an event occurred. In a similar fashion, with regard to what we're talking about today, if somebody who's in the middle that you trust and respect, Aunt Larry, Cousin Sue, Aunt Joan, and, and you know these people well, they may not... You, maybe you don't even know whether they share your views on an issue, but you see that they take an action or they do something. It causes you to rethink, even momentarily, even just partially, where you may be on an issue and may move you enough to make a difference. That's very, very true and very important, Paul. I remember when I was doing political consulting, we used to talk about the saints, the sinners, and the savables, all right. inside jargon, but yes. meaning that one group is never going to change. One mm -hmm. group is already on your side, and it's the savables, the people in the middle, who are the ones to really focus on. Right. And that's very true, of course, in our own politics, as you say. Um, well, there's a lot of independents that are in the middle between the two, two organized parties. How would you advise uh, uh, using this knowledge, say, when you have, we know, as you were just explaining, people can influence other people by just sharing their opinions or sharing their different experience. Is there a way as a communicator that you might go about that in an organized fashion? Uh, this ties back to some of the grassroots type of activities that we talked about in, in previous sessions on this series of maybe identifying some of these influencers or going out and, and looking for them and mobilizing them maybe to help uh, and be uh, proactive in a communications campaign. Right. So there's a, a few things. It's human nature when you're attacked to want to counterattack. And that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. The most important thing is to reframe the debate in a way that shifts public attention away from the opponents, 
You do not want to be in a he said, she said situation. Another level down the rabbit hole is spending a lot of time correcting facts. There's been a lot of recent research that's done around the coronavirus vaccine. And uh, for our listeners who may or may not know this, obviously there's a well-established anti-vaccination movement. And what's happened is um, in studies of, of opposition to the coronavirus vaccine effort is that the more people say you're wrong, the more deeply held these beliefs become. So that's a loser. It's absolutely something that people feel compelled to do, but it's wrong to spend a lot of time focusing on differences. It's much more important to focus on, at first, higher level concepts that everyone can agree on. Could you maybe give an example of, of this in action, or have you seen this done well by, by a company or an individual? Uh, this is a lesson that needs to be learned, and I must admit, I, I personally have a hard time seeing, <laughs> seeing this done well. Right. So there actually are a fair number of examples uh, of this be, being done well uh, on the national stage. One that's evolving right now, and I don't know whether or not it's going to succeed is uh, the use of, uh, by President Biden saying that he wants to be the president for all Americans. That's the kind of language that we're, we're talking about here. On a, on a more tactical, granular level, when you look across the country at ballot initiatives that have asked people to pay more in taxes for a specific purpose. The ones that have succeeded have done so by making the kind of case we're talking about. If you can point to specific tangible outcomes that are beneficial to everyone involved, it gets enough of the public that you're trying to reach on board to make things happen. And this has happened in communities where, uh, you know, talking about politics where Republicans are in charge and where Democrats are in charge. So it's not a D or an R issue. It's a can we see the bigger picture issue mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. speak about it and communicate with each other in ways that we both can see a positive outcome. Uh, another example would be, uh, and sorry, I just I think it's, it's relevant there's now broad agreement nationally that we need criminal justice reform. Now, what does that mean? You will find that on the margins, there's not agreement about certain things. But in the middle, there's an agreement, for instance, that during the 1980s, maybe the nation became a little bit too aggressive in imprisoning folks who were drug users rather than drug pushers. And we're now seeing a move that, you know, President Trump took actions to do this. Democrats think this is a good idea. Republican legislatures, Democratic legislatures, communities to get people out of prison who brought agreement again, maybe don't belong there anymore. So that's a good example of finding the, the middle ground there where uh, a very broad uh, group of uh, individuals have consensus, 
Uh, we could point to many other uh, issues in that regard, too, like gun control, for example, of trying to get people, uh, the vast majority of people behind a middle ground. And one thing I wanted to ask you about that I, I read in your book was uh, you pointed out that fear doesn't really work as a motivator. And really, the uh, having your communications and your actions based on the language of trust and acting your capitalist story is more effective. And yet it does seem like a lot of people are motivated by, by fear today. And a big reason why so much of the disinformation that has been shared has been believed because uh, it, pos- it it approaches people from a, a fear perspective. You know, we need to stop immigration because people coming in are going to hurt us and take our jobs. You know, we need to have guns to protect ourselves. And there's many, many, many examples of this nature where it seems to be effective. But could you comment on that? Oh, absolutely. So the thing to know about fear motivations is that they have a very short shelf life. They can be effective in the near term. And they're effective in the near term because, you know, I talked about the old brain. It stimulates areas of the brain similar to the fight or flight mechanism. And it creates a great degree of mental and emotional stress. And we can only tolerate that for so long. For some people, what happens is after a period of time, they begin to doubt and question. For other people, they begin to have other kinds of reactions from the stress that are not productive. Bottom line, after a period of time, people begin to realize that being motivated by fear is unhealthy. And they begin to turn on the people who've been trying to motivate them with fear. That's not a good scenario for someone who's trying to take a group of people in a positive direction. And you can look at uh, drug education, seatbelt use, a number of public education initiatives where fear has been tried as a motivator. And as I said, the shelf life turned out to be fairly short. However, sometimes all it's needed is a short shelf life. For example, in a political election, and we've seen that with uh, some initiatives that were defeated in my state with some, well, it happens every election. So it can work in the short term, but uh, that's reassuring to hear that in the long term, it's it's not effective uh, and needs to be replaced by something Again, as we were talking earlier, moving towards a common goal and focusing on the future and where we're going versus what we're trying to avoid and and run from. What I would say about that, Joy, is this. There's broad disengagement in the American public because of the cynicism of fear motivations. Now, there might be some folks who can see a way to use that broad disengagement as a strategy to achieve their ends. But generally speaking, there is this thing called karma and what goes around comes around. And there comes a time when even the folks who are expert fear mongers need to convey a positive message. And if they've burned up and destroyed 
their ability to communicate with people on that level, what are they going to be able to achieve? That's true. It's kind of the the case of the child who cried wolf too many times. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. We just get tired of it. Or Chicken Little, poor Chicken Little. <laughs> yes, the sky is falling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People got tired of that. Yes. Well, back to our, our topic, too, about crises and utilizing these uh, concepts. We talked about building the equity and uh, having people understand your capitalist story so that if something uh, potentially negative or negative, as you say, bad things happen to good people and good companies occurs, there is some, some a foundation there for trust. Yeah. Are there any other uh, examples that you might have uh, seen this philosophy or this, this concept at work in, say, in a crisis situation? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, we've worked with manufacturers over the years. And uh, I can't share names, but I can tell you that we've worked with uh, manufacturers of industrial products in situations where the tension was between growing the company and managing fears of neighbors in the community around what that would mean. Would it mean additional pollution? Would it mean uh, traffic? This is actually a very classic sort of dynamic that plays out quite frequently. As we record this podcast, uh, not too long ago, the Keystone XL Pipeline, which has been a national issue for more than a decade, uh, the, the Biden administration made a decision that caused the backers to ultimately decide not to, to build the pipeline. And everything I just mentioned was at play in this event. That's an extreme, however. Typically speaking, these sorts of situations are much more local. And you're talking neighbors and neighbors. One house, somebody works at the plant. Two doors down, somebody's concerned about the safety of the plant. So how do you deal with that? The language of trust and your capitalist story would suggest that your messaging needs to be very simple, not filled with jargon. So so plain spoken, if you will. And and as well, what you want to do is you want to make it personal and positive and plausible. So talk about the neighbor, right? From from both perspectives. Joe, you're concerned about what might happen with your kids. Your neighbor, Tom, works there. He's concerned about providing an education for his kids. You're both concerned about your kids. How can we look at this in a way that ensures that your kids and his kids are safe and that they have a strong and successful future? That's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the language of trust. And if you're working with the company, the capital S story of that organization has to demonstrate that it incorporates both of those considerations. The neighbor uh, who's concerned about the environment and the safety of his kids from pollution and the neighbor who works at the plant. Now, we've worked in those kinds of situations and, and, and done that kind of messaging. You know, and you just also reminded me, we were talking earlier about influential people and as they share their thoughts, the people around them might open 
or close their minds in a certain way, that the employees of a company or an organization are such key ambassadors. And that's why they need to understand the capitalist story and they need to see that it's real and that it is uh, acted upon by by leadership. Uh, one client that uh, we worked with for decades when the executives would get together to make a decision, they'd say, well, well, how is this in line with our mission? And usually, you know, the mission statements are a plaque on, in, the, in the lobby, but this company used it uh, when they were actually making major, major decisions. And so employees need to see that that's real because if the company's saying one thing, you don't want the employees out saying, well, that's not true. Let me tell you what's really going on. So that's why also the importance of bringing employees and internal audiences in to this kind of uh, campaign is so important. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of the reason why we landed on this concept that we live and breathe called the capitalist story and the reason why I define it the way I do, why somebody would buy from you, work for you, invest in you is because the same story, as you just pointed out, needs to be shared with every audience or else you're really, really in trouble. And it's sad, but far too many organizations have not learned this lesson, and they often wind up paying a terrible price in the midst of a crisis. The example you just shared is so common, Joy. Uh, If we went on the Internet right now and did a little Googling, I'm sure we would find a company out there where there's an internal whistleblower who feels that their employer, the person who signs their paychecks, is doing something wrong. And they're out there sharing a different story than the organization. And don't get me wrong, there, there, are, there are bad organizations out there. That employee may be right. Or, sadly, that employee may not be a recipient of a dialogue or a participant in a dialogue with the company and just doesn't really know what's going on. And frankly... Regardless of the crisis we're talking about, this is a huge issue. And what we see often, especially in working with B2B companies and manufacturing companies, is uh, the older generation that might be running the organization, they don't have any presence. Nobody knows their story. And that's wrongly a point of pride until a crisis happens. Then, as I said earlier in this episode, what you have is the first 10 results on Google are all negative. And so that's all the people know about the company because no deposits have been made into the bank of goodwill. There aren't any employees out there talking about what a great organization it is or customers. And all the people have to go on is all of the bad news they get when something bad happens. Paul, we've reached the end of our session, but I want to ask if there is anything else uh, that we that I haven't asked you about, or that you think you'd you'd want to add to to this discussion about this very important topic. Well, thank you, Joy. And the one thing that we didn't talk about that you and I both know from work we've uh, done together and from our experiences, the wrong time to be thinking about all this is in the middle of a crisis. We really need to be doing this work beforehand. And to give the listeners a picture of what I mean. Few of us are crazy enough to own a home or drive a car or operate a business without having insurance. Really what we're talking about here is making sure that you have the reputational insurance when a crisis hits. 
so that you're prepared. That's really what this is all about. All the tools we talked about today can most certainly be employed during a crisis, but it would be very wrongheaded to take them out of the box for the first time when you're in the middle of a crisis, try to put them together, and try to follow the instructions. It'd be too late. We see that so often, and it doesn't have to be. Building that foundation of, of trust and communication and getting known and, and forming relationships, it should be part of every company's strategy. And it, it, I love your analogy. It's insurance. You know, we would, we would not uh, go bare with no insurance of any kind as we operate at any kind of concern. And yet this area can be overlooked and it, it, with uh, potentially very negative consequences. Yes. It's, uh, I often call this the brain surgery of PR, not because I like to pat myself on the back, but because like brain surgery, if you make a mistake, the patient dies. Nobody wants their organization to die because their reputation has been damaged so severely because of their lack of preparation. Words of wisdom. Thank you, Paul. And again, we encourage everybody to uh, to get and read Paul's book. It's going to change your thinking about communication, no matter how long you might have been in this industry. Paul, thank you so very, very much. We really appreciate all of this insight and wisdom. Thank you, Joy. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone who listened. Thank you for listening to the PRBI Insider featuring members of the PR Boutique's International Association. Never miss an episode. Go to prbiinsider.com and follow us in your favorite podcast app or subscribe via email. Learn more about PRBI at prboutiques.com.